If you're going to run a great business, you've got to have great people, and finding them is a huge part of that puzzle. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. ZipRecruiter.com has a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. It identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. The right candidates are out there. You can find them, but ZipRecruiter is how. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. One more time, try it for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. ZipRecruiter, it's the smartest way to hire. Once you check out their interface and you see those candidates come right into your inbox, you're going to realize it's a great choice. ZipRecruiter.com slash buck you are entering the freedom hut big day in u.s israel relations as the embassy has been moved from tel aviv to jerusalem you've also got violence at the border of Gaza and the Israeli state. We'll talk about what all of that means. Plus, a teen magazine that's celebrating Karl Marx. Seems pretty crazy to me. We'll get into that and a whole lot more coming up. This This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. What a day, my friends. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Honor and a privilege to have you here with me, as always. I am really enjoying watching this Trump administration flummox the critics just to drive them up the wall. I'm not going to say that that's the one and only thing that I need to keep me happy with this administration. That's not true. We need policy success. We need victories beyond just the rhetorical. But man, it is fun to watch them squirm while... Trump does things on the world stage, the place where he's supposed to be the least adept, right? We were told, okay, maybe he'll be good at infrastructure, maybe. Maybe he'll be good at a little bit of dealing here and there. But foreign policy, that's the preserve of the fanciest, smartest people, the kind of people who work for Democrat administrations, not Trump the ruffian, the billionaire barbarian. Not possible for him to get further with some of these U.S. interests and some of these global policy matters than previous administrations. Certainly not in 18 months as opposed to the eight years of his predecessor. And yet here we are. President uh, President Trump getting a lot of gratitude, a very warm his administration, the folks that are over there, Ivanka, Jared, Mnuchin and others. Warm reception uh, in Israel today. Here is what the prime minister had to say about this embassy opening. Play clip nine. Dear friends, what a glorious day. Remember this moment. This is history. President Trump, by recognizing history, you have made history. There you go. 
making history, let's be honest, not in year one, technically it's year two now. That's still really early, isn't it? It's still rather impressive. And it's just the beginning, isn't it? Now, I, I will get into some of the, the uh, violence going on in Gaza. We'll talk about that as well, because it's not like this is going on without there being a, uh, a, a, I shouldn't say a downside to it necessarily. It's just a, an opposite reaction. Right? It doesn't have to be this way. That's what I mean by it. The, the downside doesn't come along with this decision. There is no reasonable expectation that anyone should have that because the United States moves its embassy. By the way, who is that really a decision for? For us and for the, our Israeli hosts. That's it. It, re- it really isn't, in fact, something that we have to take a, a worldwide proxy vote. We don't have to ask everyone's opinion on this. And yet you get the sense there's this... Uh, consideration of this as though this is a vote by committee instead of a bilateral issue which is really what it turns out to be or turns out that it is um a few things i want to get into the gaza situation what's going on with these these so-called protests i mean yeah there's some protests but there's some violence and uh yes dare i say some terrorist activity going on as well And that has led to a response from the IDF, from Israeli forces, that has uh, resulted in the deaths of uh, over 50 people. But I first want to look at the policy side of this. And just note that this is an issue among the very first issues that I ever looked at as a policy matter. In fact, I am in the swamp right now, not far away from my first D.C. job, where I spent my first time in D.C., working at a Mideast think tank as a research intern for the Clinton-era negotiator for the Arab-Israeli peace process. So that takes me back, gosh, uh, 17 years, 18 years, something like that. It's almost 20 years ago now, which, as I say that out loud, it feels pretty crazy, but that is the case. Uh, So this was an issue that I went to very early on in my academic career, studied in school, and I learned a few things, and this is this will hopefully provide some context for the discussion we're about to have. I learned some things. One is that, generally speaking, in this country, on the issue of Israel and Palestine, it quickly devolves into not, hey, how could we solve this? Everyone pretends that they want to solve it, but very quickly you see that there is a polarization that occurs because people feel the need to just to take a side. Right? They take a side. And the pro-Palestinian left, I, I, am, I kid you not, I almost physically bumped into, and I don't mean that it would have been an accident, we were both in the coming out of the train, uh, I saw Linda Sarsour today at the train station here in D.C. Uh, just walked right past her, and we were, we were a foot away from each other. I said, oh, interesting. Speaking of the anti-Israeli pro-Palestinian left, you have Linda Sarsour in the house. Part of me was like, it would be fun to try to engage. But you know what? I, I give people their private space, even public people. I, don't, I see someone in public. Um, I, I'm never going to heckle. I'm not one of those. I'm just, it's just not who I am. Linda Sarsour, it was, it was at least thought about, I thought about it, right? It would have been, hey, so uh, why do you say all those terrible things? Just curious. You want to try to 
have a discussion about that, but I'm sure profanity would have come my way. And why? Ruin her day, ruin my morning. Uh, but you, you often see that this gets turned into a highly politicized discussion. And so I tell you from the outset that I, I want to solve the issue, but I also am allied uh, ideologically and otherwise with the Israeli state. So just to be upfront about it, doesn't mean I think everything Israel does is great. doesn't mean that I don't think that there's some uh, difficulties on both sides that we could alleviate, uh, that we could do things to make less problematic. Uh, but I just view right now you have an Israeli state that's trying uh, to do the right thing and that's trying to live in peace and has achieved a tremendous amount of prosperity. You have Palestinian people who are suffering, granted, but you have a Palestinian leadership that's a disgrace. And Hamas is a disgraceful organization. It's a terrorist organization. So I side with civilization against the terrorists. That's just a shorthand way of saying I'm with, I'm with the Israeli people in the Israeli state against Hamas. I don't view Palestinians and Hamas as one and the same, though. I would also like to uh, help I would like the situation to be improved and America to play a role in that for Israelis and Palestinians. And so with that, or for Palestinians specifically, uh, with that in mind, a few things here that I I think have not gotten nearly enough attention with with today. And and I'll also come back to the Trump uh, component of all this. But this is not the end of the U.S. as an arbiter in this in Mideast peace. This is not uh, in any way, I think, something that we can look at as even a, a huge... Uh, it's interesting. It's tremendously significant as symbol, but in terms of where this takes us with the actual peace process, right, the, the very elusive now... Um, Palestinian-Israeli peace process we've been trying to achieve. Uh, I actually think this will be better. And here's why. There was never going to be an Israeli state. It just wasn't going to happen. That did not have, as its end state, uh, Jerusalem as its capital. So then you start to wonder, what's with the not having embassies in the capital if there there is absolutely, positively, no way that there would be an Israel that would allow Jerusalem to not be its capital, right? It was never going to be traded away. It was never going to be placed under just a generalized international mandate or all that. No, that was never going to happen. So why go through these games? Why, why go through these motions of, well, we're going to wait on the embassy because we don't want to make it seem like we've already decided. Well, they have decided, as they should. So it doesn't really change very much in that regard. Uh, and people will talk about a two-state solution, uh, and that's been the, there are a lot of, there are buzzwords you'll hear about this, and what is it, like UN resolution, uh, they'll talk about 242 and 338 and land for peace, and there's all, this has been ongoing for decades and decades now, and no one's really gotten very far. Although the biggest improvement has just been the Israelis, that's right, building a wall, building a, an actual physical border and creating security for themselves and then saying, okay, well, now what? And the Palestinians, as they have done so many times, never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. 
And Mahmoud Abbas, the leader of the uh, Palestinian Authority, is uh, a disgrace. And now we get to finally see an administration coming along, the Trump administration, that says this is just, this is nonsense, this holding off on the embassy. Why? It's already U.S. law. What's the, what's the point of pretending that there will be any future where we don't put our embassy with this Israeli state in Jerusalem? This isn't a carrot that should be offered up, right? This isn't an inducement to talks. This is just reality. So I think that that's, uh, that's very important. And it also undermines a narrative here. You see, the, the narrative from Hamas is that the Israelis don't actually even, that the Jews do not actually have ties to Jerusalem they have no they have no authentic relationship with Jerusalem they're usurpers you know all kinds of vitriol from Hamas specifically ar- around Jerusalem and this clearly undermines that narrative right because one of the problems that you have with the hardliners the radicals pre- predominantly in Gaza but there's some in the West Bank too is that they are told by their leadership, this is just temporary. This is just temporary. And they don't mean it's temporary as in there'll be a peace settlement. They mean the existence of the Jewish state is temporary. So when the world's lone superpower says, actually our our embassy with the Jewish state is going to go in their capital of Jerusalem, it doesn't obliterate the notion of a two-state solution. Quite the contrary, and I'll get into some of that in a moment. But what it says is you've got to stop believing and telling in the case of the Hamas leadership, got to stop believing these lies that this is going to change, that there is a world in which uh, a, a world that you should be waiting for, in which there is no Jewish state, there is no Jewish uh, presence in Jerusalem. It's just not going to happen. Because th- as long as people believe, and they've been fed a diet of anti-Semitism and anti-Israeli rhetoric for a very long time, I actually tell you, I, I had a, it's kind of a personal aside, I had a, uh, a girlfriend many years ago who, instead of meeting, it was her choice, she was in grad school, and instead of meeting me in, I, I forget where, I was going to meet her in Italy somewhere for, you know, a romantic week away, vacation. And instead of going with me, she decided to go interview the families of suicide bombers in the West Bank for a school project. It wasn't mandated, but she did it. And putting aside for a moment the fact that I was disappointed and that was not a a good move for our relationship, uh, when she came back, she had a completely different view of what the problem was over there because you had women who were celebrating the martyrdom of their children as suicide bombers. It was as though they had, you know, gotten into Harvard or something, but obviously dead now and killed a bunch of people in the process. That this was a good thing. And that was, and this was now stretching back, gosh, a decade ago. But that was a, um, that was a moment that I always remember because Palestinian society had been so poisoned by this rhetoric from Hamas and these extremists and Palestinian Islamic Jihad and you know, the Al-Aqsa Martyr Brigades, all these, these different groups and factions within the groups and militants that this had now taken over even in some of the homes of people as normal in their minds. That's how poisoned they had become against, honestly, any basic decency or humanity. 
So you have to eradicate that. You have to take that narrative and shatter it and get rid of it. It's bad for the Palestinians. It's bad for it's bad for everyone. And I think that moving the embassy works to that effect. I do have to talk to you about Gaza. Uh, we've got a lot here on this. Um, and also the Trump administration getting credit for this. Uh, so we'll spend most of uh, this hour on this issue. And then next hour, we'll talk maybe a bit about where the latest is with, uh, with Mueller. Uh, the White House still under siege. No surprise there. That's like every day. And then I've got some interesting, an interesting assortment of stories, including uh, legalizing sports betting. Talk about that. Karl Marx gets a shout-out from Teen Vogue. Who knew? Crazy world. And uh, if you stay through the whole show, I've got a really heartwarming story about a, a wedding that you wouldn't expect at the very end. So um, got a lot more coming, team. Stay with me. Jerusalem is still the capital of Israel and must remain an undivided city accessible to all. As soon as I take office, I will begin the process of moving the United States ambassador to the city of Israel as chosen as its capital. I continue to say that uh, Jerusalem will be the capital of Israel, and I have said that before and I will say it again. And Jerusalem will remain the capital of Israel and it must remain undivided. It is time to officially recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. While previous presidents have made this a major campaign promise, they failed to deliver. Today, I am delivering. Right, so, so the president there is just doing what you would think any previous president that we played the audio from, right? We went through, you know, Clinton, Bush, Obama, all, all of them. They're all saying that it, that Jerusalem's the capital of Israel. Okay, so why wouldn't we put our embassy where the capital is? What are we caving to? What sensibility are we trying to placate with this? And with Trump, the genius, and yeah, that's right, I said it, the genius of some of his foreign policy moves thus far has been to forget about the so-called consensus. Forget about what the people that think they are oh so smart on these issues have been telling each other about them for a very long time without fixing anything, without even moving the ball downfield and say, what is the problem? Let's do something about it. What, do, what are we saying about it? Well, let's do something based on what we say. In this case... That means if Jerusalem is the capital, that's where the embassy will be. It's so, simp- it's so simple, isn't it? It's so straightforward. This uh, Trump takes kind of an Occam's razor approach to foreign policy. All right, we got a big problem with North Korea. Let's maximize our leverage. We'll sit down and talk to North Korea, see if they'll stop this crap. We've got an agreement with the state of Israel that Jerusalem is their capital. We've said we want to move our embassy there. Let's just move our embassy there. There's no future in which we're not going to put our embassy there, so why not just do it now? And I think the messaging is very powerful for why moving it is, in fact, the right the right thing to do. Now, David Ifun will be joining us here in just a moment. He's a, if you listen to the show, you know he's a brilliant guy, editor-in-chief of the Algaminer, uh, knows the Israeli issue backwards and forwards. So we'll talk to him about this, and then I've got a whole lot more. Um, stay tuned, team. Over a century ago, 
the Balfour Declaration recognized the right of the Jewish people to a national home in this land. And exactly 70 years ago today, President Truman became the first world leader to recognize the newborn Jewish state. Last December, President Trump became the first world leader to recognize Jerusalem as our capital. And today, the United States of America is opening its embassy right here in Jerusalem. Thank you. Thank you, President Trump, for having the courage to keep your promises. Thank you, President Trump, and thank you all for making the alliance between America and Israel stronger than ever. Prime Minister Netanyahu giving a heartfelt thanks to the Trump administration and, and the United States of America today because of what's going on with the, uh, the embassy move. We've got somebody who can help us put all of this into uh, context as well as some of the uh, violence going on in Gaza. We have David Ifun on the line. He is the editor-in-chief of the Algeminer, which is the fastest-growing Jewish newspaper in the country. Uh, David, great to have you back. Always a pleasure, bud. Uh, I just wanted to hear from you what what the uh, significance is in your mind in terms of U.S.-Israel relations of today. It's hugely significant. Um, not so much so far as, you know, what is being said in and of itself. I think it, it's long been the case that Jerusalem has been the capital of Israel, of course, historically, and of course, that's how Israel has always viewed it. And as an act of Congress back in 1995, the American people have recognized that as well. What's important today is really the symbolism of it. It's the celebration of it. It's the fact that that world newspapers and media outlets and headlines across the world are, are featuring the unveiling of this of this embassy, the public celebration and pronouncement, the comments from Benjamin Netanyahu, and it's hard to 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 really get a sense of of what this means to the Israeli people. There has there been some some imagery and some footage of of uh, the streets of Jerusalem, which uh, are bedecked with flags, uh, thanking President Trump. Obviously. You played that clip. President Truman has a very special place in the Israeli hearts as the first person to recognize the, the, the nascent state of Israel while it was under siege. And the Israelis certainly feel very strongly about President Trump. I think, I mean, it, it, a while ago he was he was more popular there than in the United States, uh, which is one of only a couple of countries where he's perceived in that way. Now I'm sure uh, if a poll were to be taken, it would be even higher. They, they feel recognized, they feel that justice has been served, and there's a great deal of credit for President Trump uh, for really taking a historic stand on this issue, bucking the, the political correctness and this uh, sense of, of, of fear and, 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 uh, and insensitivity to, to uh, the Israeli perspective on things, and coming out and saying uh, that we're going to accept this publicly, we're going to put, move our embassy, make a statement, and nobody's going to stop us. One thing that I read today, uh, David, and, and I don't think this is getting nearly enough uh, attention in the press, although you and I could both surmise as, as to why that is, but there are some uh, knowledgeable onlookers, uh, analysts of this situation, who are saying that this is actually better for a perspective peace process. Uh, could you give me your sense of that? 
Look, that's certainly the the, the perspective, uh, and that's the, the 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 narrative that we've been hearing from the White House. And I think there is there is certainly an element of truth to that. I mean, this is this is I mean the age-old discussions of of peacemaking, especially when you're when you're dealing with a an adversary that that doesn't really have an, any intention to to split hairs with you to 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 reason and to divide. I mean, look. It's very, very clear that the, that the Palestinian preference is the, the complete annihilation, eradication, and replacement of the Jewish state of Israel as it stands today. So when you're dealing with an adversary who has that end goal, uh, negotiating from a position of strength actually leads to a greater opportunity for, for, for some form of concession. The first thing that's necessary is for, for them to understand that the enterprise known as Israel is not up for negotiation and its eradication and removal is not on the horizon. And when that becomes a starting point, you can have a real discussion. As long as there is some hope that eventually, uh, piece by piece, in the long term, the the entity called Israel can be outmaneuvered and bypassed and overrun, uh, then the tendency and the willingness to make real concessions and to really come to terms with it uh, are going to be a lot less. And I think, by the way, that applies uh, to lots of international discussions. There are, there are echoes of that line of thinking in the North Korea discussions, in the Iranian discussions. In the end of the day, as with everything in life, you know, the adversaries are going to push as hard as, as they can until they meet resistance. And uh, when facts are established and when resistance and when lines in the sand are drawn and they're maintained, that's when you can start to have a conversation uh, which doesn't involve the demise of either party. Now, I have to ask you, David, I have to ask you about this violence uh, in Gaza at the at the border fence between Israel and Gaza. Uh, what, what do you make of it? I mean, clearly, there's a there's an effort to punch through the fence. Uh, you have these the people referring to this as a protest today in response uh, to the embassy move when we, we know that for six weeks now, these so-called protests that include Molotov cocktails being thrown, that include uh, people carrying knives and chanting about how they want to break into Israel and kill as many people as possible. It's not really much of a protest, uh, but that has been going on here. What is behind this? I mean, what do those showing up at the border fence between Israel and Gaza think they will accomplish by doing this? Look, at the end of the day, this is just a, a, a repurposed suicide bombing campaign. It has all of the same mechanics, mechanisms, motivations of your traditional terrorist suicide bomber. I mean, these guys are being handed uh, weaponry. Uh, in some cases, uh, explosives are being sent down to the border. They know what, what the result is going to be. They know, and Hamas knows, and, and the recent studies, the Mayor Amit Intelligence Center that studied many of the recent casualties found that the vast majority of them were, were actually card-carrying members of terrorist groups. Today we published uh, details of a report that was put together by a group of very, very senior military people out in Europe, uh, headed by Colonel Richard Kemp, who was the head of British forces in Afghanistan, uh, and a number of other very, very senior military officials who describe this as an orchestrated military terrorist campaign by the Hamas in Gaza. But, you know, that's something that we've come to expect from Hamas. In the end of the day, they are cut from the same cloth as al-Qaeda 
and as ISIS and as other, other various other barbaric terrorist groups that are across the globe. What is most disturbing, though, is the way that major media outlets that are supposed to have some kind of journalistic uh, uh, um, guidelines or, or, or uh, benchmarks. Theoretical objectivity, I like to call it, yeah. Theoretical objectivity. So, so we're seeing the Huffington Post. I don't know if they have the headline still up now, right? But they had it a couple of hours ago. That The headline was Embassy Massacre. I encourage your listeners to, to, to go and to check their Webster's Dictionary and see what the word massacre means. That is actually a blood libel. To, to, to accuse Israel of a, a sovereign state of wantonly uh, uh, massacring un, unarmed and defenseless uh, civilians, from and this is from a major Western media outlet, that, I, I don't know if it's still owned by AOL or Time Warner, whatever it is, these are major U.S. companies, you've got to have some semblance of responsibility. It's, it's outrageous how the media, how the major media outlets in the United States, certainly in Europe, I mean, look at the BBC today and the Figaro and, and all of the major, the, the Aftonbladet, Swedish media outlets, I mean, they're leading on this thing uh, and, and, and with the Hamas narrative that they have swallowed hook, line, etc., David Afoon is the editor-in-chief of the Algeminer, largest Jewish uh, or fastest-growing Jewish newspaper in the country. You should check it out, algeminer.com. David, always great to have you, man, and uh, uh, a good day in a lot of ways today. Always a pleasure, Buck. Absolutely. Team, we're rolling into a quick one. Uh, I've got a lot more for you coming back in just a moment. One thing I have to note is the similarity between the way the uh, media reports on the so-called protests at the Israel-Gaza border and the way that some protest movements in this country are described, right? If you have a large gathering, and some people have placards, some people have posters that they're walking around with, slogans they're chanting, and... There is also a a group within that group that is engaged in violence. Do you call it a do you call it a, a mostly mostly peaceful protest or do you focus on the violent actors? Right. You see this all the time with the left in this country, whether it's Antifa or Black Lives Matter or any number of political movements where there are some people who are violent. But then there's this bigger group that's not engaged in violence. I'm talking about at the specific event. And they'll call it a mostly peaceful protest. Even in Ferguson, where buildings were burning down, it was a mostly peaceful protest. These thousands and thousands of Palestinians who have been gathered for six weeks at the border with Israel are, yeah, they're engaged in protest, right? That's part of it. But they're also engaged in a, a form of, uh, it's kind of a passive assault. I mean, I don't know what you really, they're walking and walking and daring the authorities to actually, in this case, the Israelis, right, the border patrol or the, or the military, uh, to do something about them. They're trying to run, the, uh, run through the fence or get, get beyond the fence and get into Israel proper. The Israelis aren't going to allow that. At some point, the state's mandates have to be enforced with force or else they cease to exist. And that's what they're testing here, right? They, they do this through a form of, 
a kind of aggressive activism. Uh, but then on top of that, there are the people that are throwing Molotov cocktails, which can kill people, right? That's lethal. Throwing rocks, a favorite of so-called Palestinian protesters. Um, someone throws a rock at me, and it's big enough, and there's enough of them. Um, I got to think long and hard about whether I'm going to draw my firearm and draw down on them, because if I get hit in the head with that rock, I could die. I could get knocked out, then they come over and take my gun and shoot me. I'm not going to sit there and get pelted with rocks. I don't have a great arm, but if I threw a pretty good-sized rock at somebody and I hit them in the head, that's going to be lights out for them. Uh, so, you know, this notion of, oh, they're just throwing rocks, they're just throwing rocks, that's a big deal, actually. Would you say they're just... Pun- Would you rather have somebody throw a, a big piece of concrete at you or take a swing at you, throw a punch at you? I, I might actually take the punch over the piece of concrete. But if a bunch of people tried to punch me and I had a firearm on me and I felt like my life was in danger... I would probably draw down. Many of you are familiar with the often taught rule about 20 feet. How quickly can you actually get to your firearm if someone has an edged or even blunt weapon and they come at you? If they're within 20 feet, there's a very good chance. they're Now, I know a lot of you are like, Buck, I'm much faster than that. But even folks with some training, very unlikely they'd be able to get, if they're talking about a sidearm now, get to their sidearm, draw their sidearm, and fire it, or they could be either stabbed or hit. Even if you get the, sh- the rounds off, that person, the attacker's forward momentum and, and adrenaline may allow them to complete the attack even after you've gotten the shot off. And remember, especially if you've got like a 9 millimeter, it's probably going to take more than one round. If you're going for center mass, it might take a few rounds. So, you know, it's not as easy as just, well, you've got people with guns that are manning this border fence, and then you've got a bunch of innocent civilians who just want to protest. That's not what's happening here. I've never seen this before. This is new, actually. Fire kites are being deployed. So they have these kites that they uh, set on fire, obviously, and then they try to fly them over the fence, you know, catch a gust of wind, and then have them land in Israel to basically start field fires or forest fires. Uh, as I said, incendiary devices, that's a Molotov cocktail. Uh, that's something else they've been throwing. People are showing up with knives saying they want to stab Israelis. They're chanting about how they want to march all the way to Jerusalem. This isn't peaceful protest. Uh, You know, this is um, this is like a mob marching up to a police officer and all throwing rocks at him. What's that cop supposed to do? Just just keep getting pelted with rocks. Oh, it's not it's non-lethal force they're using. Actually, it's not true. Uh, So, you know, this is where you're seeing the the media breakdown between how they view. It's amazing. You, know, you think a CNN, for example, takes a very pro-Palestinian point of view and, and people would say, oh, why is that? Oh, that's right. CNN makes, I believe, most of it certainly makes a lot of its money in the international market. That's why they can have all these boring shows that nobody watches on during the day and the ratings are garbage and nobody it doesn't really matter all that much. Because CNN as an organization makes a ton of money. Because in a lot of countries, it's considered, you know, this is the American cable news channel of, of record. And so they'll just beam it all over the world. So, you know, you've seen international and it's in airports everywhere. It's kind of a background channel, right? For In a lot of countries, CNN is the uh, the airport mu- or, or the um, elevator music of the news industry. It's just kind of there and you can kind of watch it or kind of not watch it. But they I think that's why they take this particularly uh, pro-Palestinian viewpoint, a lot of things. 
and certainly with the Trump administration, and I didn't get into that as much this hour, but they view this as because Trump did it, it has to be bad. Breaking with tradition, I think, was the headline I saw I saw earlier today. The Trump administration breaks with tradition. Oh, no, don't break with tradition. The tradition that has not exactly worked out so well, considering that the peace process under the Obama administration, the, the Israeli-Palestinian peace process did not get to first base. I think you could argue that Obama didn't even get up to the plate, didn't even get a chance to bat because his administration was so inept in bringing together the Israeli side with the Palestinian side of that negotiation. So they have no wisdom to share here. They have no perch from which they can cast aspersions on what Trump is doing. And I think we will see that uh, this was a, was a spark for discussions. Or, or if not, guess what? At least they tried. At least they did something. They took action instead of sitting around thinking that the status quo was what we want because it is clearly not uh, I, I want to switch gears because I know there's been a lot of talk about what's going on with the embassy today and let's focus on some things here at home immigration coming up in the next hour and also uh, SNL and political comedy today we'll get into that and much more stay with me so my family has a French bulldog Miss Molly has a pit bull boxer mix but whether you've got a little pup or a big one, you know that they can dig. And if they've got a lot of energy, if you've kept them cooped up for part of the day and then they get outside, guess what? Some of them start digging and digging and then they can get out. And that can be dangerous, right? Get out in the roadway, get out in the neighborhood. Now all of a sudden you're looking for your dog or predators can get inside your fence. Well, I've got the answer for you. Dig defense. It's genius, and it solves the problem of having a dog that digs under the fence. No amount of digging is going to let your pets out of the yard or predators in. It is easy to install, comes in a bunch of different models. All you need is a hammer and a pair of gloves. If you have pets that dig under the fence, try it out. It's available online at Lowe's, Menards, Wayfair, and StopTheDig.com. Dig Defense is a solution to pets digging under that fence. Check it out. StopTheDig.com now. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One make, make no mistake. America. Ready. Great. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Just tell me, what do you need for this to all go away? A resignation. Yeah, right. <laughs> Being president is like doing porn. Once you do it, it's hard to do anything else. <laughs> Besides, my poll numbers are finally up. And speaking of polls being up. <laughs> oh, come on. We'll, we'll always have Shark Week. I solved North and South Korea. Why can't I solve us? Sorry, Donald. It's too late for that. I know you don't believe in climate change, but... A storm's a coming, baby. I've never been so scared and so horny at the same time. So that was from one of the cold opens. And welcome back to the Buck Saxon Show. One of the cold opens from Saturday Night Live recently. Now, you may be saying, Buck, there's big policy matters to talk about. There's all kinds of... Well, you spent the last hour on Israel and the embassy move. I want to look at the culture for a few, for a few minutes here and what's going on. Uh, it has been my contention on this show for quite some time, and I believe it to be increasingly true and obvious 
that culture is now a casualty of, I'm sorry, comedy is now, well, actually, both of those things are true, but comedy is a casualty of the left. That progressive ideology and intersectional politics are making it increasingly impossible to actually be funny without risk to your career, to your reputation, but also it has replaced comedy with propaganda, right? Propaganda can be funny. Propaganda can sometimes be, uh, you know, clever, humorous, but it's for a purpose that you're having this stuff told to you. It it is meant to bring about a certain mindset uh, to change people's positions on things. And what you see from all the mainstream comedy shows these days with a few exceptions, but all the big platforms, the, the late shows, SNL, is just atrocious. It's not funny. Uh, it's the same Trump derangement syndrome, snide commentary that dresses, dresses itself up as comedy somewhat, but is certainly not actually, first and foremost, concerned with making people laugh. And it's gotten so bad that I see even Vice, which is a left-wing hipster media organization published a piece on how these cold opens from SNL are just virtue signaling uh, political screeds from the left. They're not funny. They're elitist. They're snide. They're nasty. And it just goes to show you how much Trump has rattled the other side, that this is what they have to do week in, week out. They have all, they have, all these different staff writers, they're supposed to come up with, with jokes that will make the American people laugh. And I think there's a real loss here. Because maybe it's just cowardice, right? They have to make fun of Trump or else they're, they worry that they'll lose their privileged positions. They, they have to make fun of conservatives, of white Christian males, of, of the right in general. Uh, because if they don't, then they're not woke enough. you know. So there's a social pressure that comes into it. But my biggest thing is they're just not funny. And I find it so rare to actually have comedy that is uh, in you know, wide circulation that has a big platform. I'm sure, look, I'm sure there are great stand-up people here. There. I've, I saw a stand-up myself in New York uh, a couple months ago, and it, you know, it, was, it was good. It wasn't overly political. There's a little political. Look, I'm okay with a little political commentary. I just think that there's a laziness that's at the heart of so much of the commentary we're seeing these days. And and look, I used to like to tune into SNL sometimes. In the Dana Carvey, Mike Myers age, you know, you'd throw it on, and there was some really good, Chris Farley, I mean, and it was funny. And you think back to the sketches that they would do, and they weren't meant to make one side of the political spectrum feel good about themselves and make the other side feel bad about themselves. It was just meant to make people laugh, you know? Wayne's World, Celebrity Jeopardy, another example. Just meant to make people, that's one of my favorites, meant to make people laugh. Where's the equivalent today? You just don't see it. And it's it's a function in large part of uh, the way the left does business now. I do blame the Democrat Party. I blame progressive ideology. I blame the Twitter outrage mobs. These newfound theories of intersectionality and the victimology that is so pervasive in progressive thought, right? Who, who's the biggest victim? That's the first thing you have to determine before you can have any discussion about anything, never mind make jokes. 
And I was actually happy to see that Jerry Seinfeld, when he was talking to David Letterman, by the way, I've never thought Letterman was funny. And everyone I ever know who's been around the guy says he's mean. So why, the, you know, he's just a construct of the legacy media. There's just so much of it. There are constructs, right? They're the equivalent in comedy or in news of pop stars, right? In sync. Uh, I was going to say Justin Bieber. Gosh, I'm losing it. I'm getting old. What's the guys? Who's the one who's married to Jessica, whatever her name is, instead of me? Damn it. Um, Timberlake, thank you. Justin Timberlake. I mean, yeah, he's talented, but the rest of those guys, yeah, they were just kind of part of a machine, right? Were they so great? Were they so so talented? Nah, they kind of got lucky they're part of a machine. You have that in comedy, too. Some of the right guys, or some guys are just in the right place at the right time. You have it in news, for sure. What's the difference between like one anchor and another over at CNN? I don't know how much Zucker and the executives like them. That's really it. Not much of a difference in skill set and certainly not much of a difference in skill set with people that are doing like, you know, local news in Peoria. I mean, it's all the same thing, right? So, but I, I look at this and I think Letterman, okay, I'm sorry. I just go on my little rants. I just don't like, I, I've tried, I'm, people are like, you're from New York. Buck, you, Letterman was based there. You should, no, Letterman is just not funny. Top 10 lists are usually cheesy, but I'm done. I mean, the whole thing, it's just not good. At least in the last, his last 10 years on air. I can't speak to what it was like, you know, earlier on. But Seinfeld was speaking to Letterman, and this issue came up. Play clip two. Do you do uh, Trump stuff when you go out? No, no, it doesn't interest me. I, I do a lot of raisin stuff. <laughs> a lot of what? Raisins. I have a lot of raisin material. Because, you know, you have the Sunmade company. Uh, <laughs> and then you have the Raisinette people. Yeah, that's right. And you're going to go with the Sunmade people. Well, I just think it's interesting that after 80 years, Sunmade finally went, hey, why don't we put some chocolate on it? Uh-huh. Like, imagine not thinking of that for 80 years. Now, I like this in a, for a number of reasons. One is that, you notice how Seinfeld, he doesn't just deflect on that. You can tell. Why antagonize half of your prospective audience? It's one thing for me. And by the way, I want Democrats to listen to this show. I think I'll make converts out of them over time. And I want smart Democrats to write to me in good faith and say, you're wrong on this because of this, or I disagree with you. I'm always trying to learn more, too. One of my favorite things about what I do is that it is my mandate to learn more, to get smarter on everything that I talk to you about, each and every time I come to this microphone so that I'm a better host. This is what it pushes me to keep reading and writing and you know diving into more books and making the time to do more research. And I, I love that part of what I do. Uh, but, you know, the, I, I also understand that you're generally going to have a right-of-center audience listen to a conservative talk radio host. If I were in comedy, I would want everybody to listen. I'd want to make everyone laugh as much as humanly possible. But they abandon that as a mission even. They're really just trying to make the left laugh. And you see this with the shows that are getting greenlit on Netflix and these other platforms. I've been telling you, we are behind on the digital platforms. We are getting, we're going to wake up and the younger generation is going to be so much more interested in the news programming on YouTube and Facebook Live and Netflix and Amazon and everything than they are in, like, the old stodgy, 
You know, I'm a news anchor on CBS, and I get paid $10 million a year, even though you could pay somebody about a tenth of that, and they'd be just as good and super excited for the job. I mean, that's all going away. Right? This is why you have a lot of the big names in media, uh, in news media, uh, at the legacy networks are really so insecure, because I think they know that, one, they're just lucky, but they're so lucky that to just get through the day, they have to think that there's actually something special about them. But two, their whole business model is, is, is disappearing. Uh, the notion of fight it out internally to get some very rarefied news anchor job in one of these places, it's just not, it's just not, people say, oh, Buck, you know, just because you're not going to do that. It, it's not going to exist anymore. Uh, and trust me, in 20 years, none of my peers, and you know who all the good conservatives are right now. I have a lot of them on the show. None of my peers who are going to be big in the commentary and news business are going to be vying for like an ABC News position. It's just not reality. Maybe there'll be some digital version of it, but it's, there's not going to be some channel that has this huge built-in advantage. Advertising changing, it's all changing Comedy, I think, is ripe for disruption. I mean, I'm not just here to bemoan this. I, I, we, we need better platforms for comedy in general, and yes, conservative comedy too. Uh, but, but as a more broad spectrum thing, I just want to see people that try to make people laugh. It's so, you know, there's all these studies about how it's good for you, and that's one of the reasons I try to joke around here as much as I can on this show. Like, I, I'm not a comedian, I know that, but I, I do try to. If I can't make you laugh, at least I'll make myself laugh over the course of the show. Uh, but you, this is something that it's just being stripped from our uh, from our culture. It really is. Uh, we are watching the death of comedy in slow motion because of progressives. Because and, and they're even starting to pick up on this. No jokes are funny. Everything is offensive, except you know you have the the double the uh, the additive effect of. Or the double whammy, that's what I was trying to think of, of, you know, you can't make any jokes unless they're about conservatives, and then you can make all of your jokes as mean as you want. That's the way that we're supposed to go forward now. It's just crazy, and I'm really tired of it. I feel like a lot of you are, too. By the way, because I do take your suggestions, folks, those of you who call in, those of you who write me, I did over the course of the week and watch a few episodes of Last Man Standing, and it was a revelation. I'm like, oh, look at this. A show about a family in America with a guy who's being a, you know, kind of a red-blooded, salt-of-the-earth guy. He's got a wife and, uh, what, three daughters, and they're just going through life, and it's supposed to be funny. That's it. Doesn't have some huge clobber-you-over-the-head agenda. Isn't supposed to be making you change the way you view this or that contentious social issue. It's just, hey, here's a show. Let's, like... Stuff that everyone deals with, whatever race, whatever creed, whatever color, whatever, you know, all of us deal with these things. And, and I think that there's there's so much more room for this now uh, because we see the way all this is going. But Last Man Standing was good. I, I think it's coming back, too, which is well, I'm happy about that. But my only thing and this is just a stylistic issue and some of you are probably going to be mad at me for that, but that's all right. I, I don't like laugh tracks. I, they have them the Big Bang Theory. They have them a lot of these big shows still. I prefer the just the comedy, and you, you kind of cut back and forth different scenes. I don't like laugh tracks. It's just a thing for me. I know I'm, you know. I also don't like when people talk in the quiet car on Amtrak, which happened recently. 
and I almost lost my cool because we are not barbarians. The quiet car is sacred. 844-900-2825, team, if you want to chat. 844-900-BUCK. Maybe we'll talk about, uh, well, there's some fun stuff from the campus reform and Obama's Nobel Prize. Also, uh, what the latest on, on immigration. We've got the, gosh, the media still dug in trying to get as much mileage as possible out of this uh, story about the bad comment made about uh, John McCain. Uh, maybe we'll get into some of that. And uh, like I said, Karl Marx, 200-year anniversary. Like, there's a teen magazine that wrote about Karl Marx. I want to tell you about that. That's coming up in a little bit. We'll talk about it. Uh, and I got a bunch of other... Oh, and this, at the... the, the at the end of the show, I've got a really sweet story to share with you. It's not mine. It's from a priest who posted online, but it's just really nice. And I think, if nothing else, stay with me through the rest of the show for that because you might tear up a little bit. Be right back. Black Rifle Coffee, my friends. It is what I drink. It is my favorite coffee, and I drink it every day, and I hope you do too. It is Founded by it was founded by veterans. They're really into it. It's small batch roast to order coffee. So they love making delicious coffee. Don't think this is just, oh, we're supporting veterans, because in and of itself, that's enough reason to buy a black rifle. But on top of that, you can add that this coffee is delicious. Silence are smooth, caffeinated as blank, uh just black rifle blend, victory blend, freedom blend uh, uh, freedom blend. They've got delicious stuff. You should really check it out. Go to blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. Type in the coupon code BUCK15. That will get you 15% off at checkout. Make sure you type in code BUCK15 for 15% off at checkout. BlackRifleCoffee.com slash BUCK is the website you should go to. They also have great gear. I've got some of their t-shirts. I really like that. I drink their K-Cups. You can have it delivered. Set up a subscription so it comes to you each month. BlackRifleCoffee.com slash BUCK. Man, they are really uh, continuing to push on this issue of uh, Kelly Sadler, the White House official who, look, made a very, very bad comment about uh, John McCain, right? Just a, a stupid, insensitive, disrespectful thing to say. But my understanding was that, she, and I could be wrong, but that she had called the McCain family, apologized to them. And yet this is still a story. I, I was in the, the gym today here. I know, right? Fighting the dad bod. It's a losing battle. I was in the gym today here in D.C. And they had MSNBC on in the locker room. First of all, there should be no TVs in the locker room. Second of all, why is it MSNBC? Uh, are they just trying to get me angry before I work out? I mean, maybe that's some form of motivation. But this is all a total aside. But they're still trying to make this a, uh, a, a story. A continuing story. I mean, we, we covered this a bit last week. Today, Raj Shaw, who we've had here on the show, took over the White House press secretary podium from Sarah Sanders. Uh, she was out for today. I don't know why. And uh, Raj had to just deal with just one question after another. Remember, we got the embassy move today. Still the, the whole Mueller probe, all that situation going on. Big immigration issues to, to deal with. Reports out that Trump wants a budget deal before the August recess. I mean, all kinds of stuff to really have the media sink their teeth into. And what do they really want to talk about? How mean somebody in the White House was 
And that's what they want to talk about. Play 11. Senator Lindsey Graham said, I wish somebody from the White House would tell the country that what Kelly Sadler said was inappropriate, that that's not who we are as a Trump administration. Why not just apologize? Kelly Sadler told Meghan McCain that she would apologize publicly, and that has not yet happened. Why has that not happened? Has she been reprimanded? Can you explain how it's being addressed internally? She is still an employee here at the White House. She came to work today. Why hasn't she publicly apologized as she told Meg McCain that she would? Trade Kelly Sadler is a little bit of a victim here. Do you agree that she's a little bit of a victim here? And why? Is there any environment where that conveying that thought would be viewed as appropriate? You said it was is dealt with internally. Has anything been dealt with since last week when she called the family? We're leading the meeting where Kelly Sadler said what she said. Mm-hmm. How did it strike you? Did you find it to be inappropriate? And how did, what was the reaction in the room? And that's, that's just a, a smattering. That's just a selection of the questions asked on this issue. A few things on this. Uh, they want her fired. The media will not be satisfied until she's fired. Oh, but keep this in mind, too. Not only do they want her fired, Once they get their way, if they get which they won't, I think, with this White House. And remember, I don't in any way, shape or form think anything other than that comment was um, completely unacceptable. But she apologized. She hasn't publicly apologized. But maybe that's because the media keeps pushing the issue with a very clear agenda, I think, of she needs to be fired for the comment to be fired. You know, this is this is also a moment where I have to wonder, and, and they they will not be satisfied even if she is fired, right? Then then it will be yet another person fired for their for being you know grotesque and terrible in this White House, and so it won't stop the stories. But another thing, and this just comes from yeah, I was a CIA guy, so discretion something that I tend to have a little bit of a better understanding of than a lot of other folks, but especially in the media. Um, who, who would? I mean, it's it's hurtful for this for the family, for the McCain family to hear this. It's just hurtful all around to spread this out there in the media. Who is the turncoat in that meeting that told everybody about this terrible comment? He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Big decision came down from the Supreme Court earlier today. It's going to change what is legal and what is not when it comes to betting on sports. I'm not somebody who watches a whole lot of professional sports, but I do have interest in the government, its regulation, and its uh, mandates when it comes to what is acceptable and unacceptable commerce. We have somebody, though, who can answer all these things for us and bring it all together and make some sense of whether you can actually now go and bet on the, I was going to say the Crimson Tide or Roll Tide, or I, I don't know. I don't know anything about college sports at all. Uh, Emily <laughs> Campagno is with us. Yeah, she knows. Emily Campagno is with us. She's a uh, former federal attorney, also a legal analyst and a sports business analyst. Emily, great to have you back. Thanks so much, Buck. How are you? All right. So, so, so tell me about uh, this decision today. First of all, what what led to this? Right. What led to this is the fact that in, in 1992, the, a law was passed that effectively prohibited states from enacting their own legislation to create sports betting, right? And New Jersey kept trying to get around it. And so eventually, the NCAA sued New Jersey for trying to get around it. So in turn, New Jersey 
sued back and said this 1992 law is unconstitutional. And finally, the Supreme Court agreed to hear it. And so what it boils down to is the fact that if the if Congress had passed a law that said we federally prohibit sports betting, then that would have been constitutional. But instead, the law said we prohibit states from passing laws to that effect. And as we know, that is prohibited via the commandeering exception in the Tenth Amendment. And so that is why the Supreme Court struck it down today. So essentially, it opens the doors for states to set their own laws to regulate and execute sports betting within their own borders. Now, under this under this law before today, right, the situation was that you could. I'm not somebody who does any sports gambling because I don't watch much of sports, as you know, Emily. Uh, but you could place a bet, right? But you would have to call Las Vegas or something, wasn't there? So, so you could be in a state, but you'd have to call a place, and they'd put the bet for you there. Or how did that work? Right. Essentially, that original law carved out exceptions. And here's the irony: is that the it actually carved out an exception for New Jersey at the time, also. And New Jersey was sluggish and slow and failed to take. Um, advantage of that. They fail to be timely. And so Las Vegas and states that already had sports lottery, which includes states like Oregon, they got in under that exception, the grandfather clause, but New Jersey just failed at it. So in a way, um, it's good that they didn't because now the law has been 100% overturned, ruled unconstitutional. But until then, in this past interim, you could only, again, um, place bets under lottery systems if it was already existing or in Vegas because of the grandfather clause. Now, note as well for listeners, this doesn't change online gambling. This only has to do with state borders. And so until it's, you know, until something happens differently on the federal level, when you see and hear people already talking about, oh, mobile apps and this and that, it has to be tied to a house. It has to be tied to a racetrack or a brick and mortar within a state so that you're not operating across state lines. Ah, okay. See, that's really important. So so before, you would have to call a state that had the exception, and they could place the bet for you in that state. And now, states, any state, based on the Supreme Court decision that came down today, any state could say, uh, you know, New York, they could say, okay, we're going to set up the New York betting authority or something, right? I mean, just, I know this isn't what they call these things, but, uh, and anyone can show up and they can bet on whether the the Hoosiers are going to beat the Hoyas, right? There we go. I got a couple. Uh, I don't know if they're even in the same <laughs> conference or whatever, but, you know, there's something, there's something there. I'm close. But so you could do that as long as you were doing it at that authority in the state where you reside or in the state where you're placing the bet. But I couldn't say as a uh, New York resident, call Ohio and say, hey, I want to bet on your uh, I want to bet on your game there. Right. I mean, is that is am I close? Um, yeah, you're you're on the right track. Absolutely. And and again, you you can't um, you can't cross state lines at this moment um, until unless you are tied directly to that house. So you're right on that account. And I do want to point out to for listeners how complex this is. In that, um, so you mentioned, you know, the Gaming Commission or, or who would oversee. So certain states have been eyeing the fact that this was in the works. And there are many states that already have legislation approved and ready to go that was contingent upon this being struck down. And they've proposed that their existing gaming commissions or things of the like will now be amended to oversee sports betting operations as well. There's obviously a lot of profit that is to be made that goes to the state and those individual houses and including sovereign tribes, right, and casinos in certain states 
um, where that applies. I want to say around 30 of them. Um, And the biggest issue here, the biggest con was the preservation or the potential for piercing of the integrity of the game. And so when you hear a lot of kind of vernacular about this, people have been talking about the the propensity for addiction, and uh, obviously there is that. But really, it had to do with preserving the game because that is why that that 1992 law was passed in the first place. And so that's why now everyone is clamoring to ensure a portion a portion of the profit goes toward what they're calling it's an integrity free. And so the irony is that all of these big league and professional sports organizations that have been protesting this the whole time, they've actually been lobbying now for the last six years undercover or, I mean, you know, openly, but on the side um, with these states to make sure that they get a cut because they're saying we are now the ones that have to foot the bill for that integrity. Huh. So what's the integrity thing, by the way? They think that if people are allowed to, if people are allowed to place bets on games, then people are going to cheat in the games. Like, is that that's what they say? Because can't you exactly. place a bet right now in Vegas? Exactly. Yes, you can. And yes, that is that is the fear that um, you know it, that coaches and players and officials and all of a sudden it will be one mass of corruption. Um, and no, no, wait, how, how much of this, Emily, I, I got to jump in. This is important. How much of this is really about Vegas, Atlantic City, a few other places spending a lot of money on on lobbying and, and trying to protect their uh, protect their own prerogatives here by being places where you can actually gamble? You know what I mean? How much of this is actually gambling special interest driven up until this point instead of actually about protecting the game? Or, do you think it really is primarily about just people wanting to protect the game? I don't know. I'm asking. I think that is the pure intent at the heart of what obviously translates into money. So it all goes to everyone wants to make sure that their bets are based on pure principles and that their money will not be um, you know, rendered vulnerable by other people cheating and by corrupting the 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 game and corrupting thus their gambling. You know, the enjoyment, of course, that's like a pure thing. That's the fan thing. But how it relates becomes a lot more complicated. And I want to point out, because we are all interested in our tax dollars and how money is spent and what things we are obligated for, the states are already taking firm positions over who foots that fee. So West Virginia, for example, they're like, absolutely not. Well, there's no way our states will shoulder one red cent of this integrity fee like absolutely not that's going to be fully casinos and new jersey says absolutely not you spent the last six years you know bleeding us dry and screwing us in court so absolutely not will you even see a red cent at all from us so it plays into into account as well like who foots the bill for the preservation that then protects people's gambling dollars as you pointed out how much money are we, do we think is at stake here if this were to go state by state and people uh, and states rather are, are passing legislation to allow sports betting. I, I, I've got to guess it's it's billions, right? I mean, there's billions of dollars that must be conceivably at play here because of this ruling. Right. Okay. So the American Gambling Association they have estimated 150 billion dollars was spent that's spent annually illegally over you know legally um, outsourced because sports betting was illegal here. And in 2017 alone in Nevada, where it's legal, so hard numbers of legal sports betting, we had $4.8 billion wagered, and then the sports books themselves made $249 million. So that's one year, one legal place, and that's, you know, that's what we're looking at. You're absolutely right. The point is in the billions. And note, too, for, for people who aren't um, as versed in gambling, 
that sports betting isn't really lucrative for the house. It is more lucrative, actually, for the, the fans. So that's an interesting thing, too, that um, it's, it pulls into play more than just, you know, the kind of well, high but, stakes stuff we see. Right. I've got to assume, though, that the same way that states justify the lottery, which is really actually a tax on many people in the working class, uh, but they justify it by taking the proceeds of lottery. So wherever you are across the country, folks listening, I mean, unless I'm missing it, maybe it's different in some states, but usually the proceeds the state gets from lottering, at least in theory, goes toward education. And I know they've done that, I think, also with taxes on marijuana in states that have de facto legalized marijuana. It's supposed to go towards schools. I got to assume that now that states have the green light, based on this Supreme Court ruling today, Emily, that they're just going to tax the tax the you know what out of sports bets in in their states. Right. It's a big source of revenue for the for the government. Oh, 100 percent. And you know that any opportunity for income for the Fed or income for the state, first of all, anything they don't get, they call, quote, lost income, which shows you that any money, any money you bring home, they really consider that's like lost. That's really their income that's lost. That's number one. And number two, yes, and the states have already come out, many of them, and said specifically, look, this is where all of that profit dollars this is where they're going. And you're right. It includes education and it includes global benefits, benefits for their citizens. So it's certainly not tied only to uh, sports or gambling. Um, and I agree with you, by the way, that the lottery is a tax on, on workers. Um, so, yes, you are 100 percent right. And a lot of the legislation, too, by the way, is not it's not set in stone. They say, look, you know, this is this is tentative. And then as soon as this law was overturned, which it was today, then the implementation, it'll be put in stone and the actual percentage of tax will be um uh, concretized at that time, essentially. Uh, so do, do you think we're going to see, just last one for you, Emily, we're speaking to Emily Campagno, by the way, everyone, go to emilycampagno.com for more of her uh, legal analysis. Are, are we going to see an explosion of uh, different states that are that are actually going to pass laws here that allow this to become kind of a, a, a new American tradition, betting on sporting events? Yes. In the last couple years, we have states that have already teed it up ready and waiting to go so we have new jersey obviously right away they even bought kiosks already i mean everyone is poised and ready to embark and we have um six that are ready to go with an additional 13 that are almost ready to go and then a couple more that have study bills in place so and by the way listeners can go online to interactive maps where they can see which states are at what stages um and yes it's absolutely an explosion happening Follow Emily Campagno on Twitter, folks. Emily, great to have you. Uh, come back soon. Thanks so much, Buck. See you soon. So, 844-900-2825. If you want to chat, we are here in the hut. We are ready to rock. Take your calls whenever you like. Um, talk to you about uh, liberal hypocrisy and immigration. That'll be fun. It's always a good topic. We'll enjoy that one. Maybe we'll make fun of college kids who don't know about Obama's Nobel Peace Prize, but I don't know. Maybe. We'll, we'll, we'll see what kind of mood we're in then, team. And uh, stay with me. Hey, team, we've got some calls coming in. Hey, John in Bucks County, based on the name, clearly God's country, Pennsylvania. Yes, John, great to have you. Yes, it is. Thanks, Bucks. Uh... I just want to say I've been listening to you for a long time since the blaze, and I'm makes me proud that there's somebody out there speaking truth to power like you. You're you're smart, you're funny, and you and you and you got a good objective opinion of stuff. You're very um, kind, sir. Thank you. 
Well, you're, you're welcome. You deserve it. Um, what I wanted to say was uh, about uh, voting. Um, we're going to vote in Pennsylvania tomorrow, and I've, I've been watching what's going on with Trump, and I hope people that, you know, people listen to Is this to a you. primary, John? Give, can you give us a little, just a little primer? What's what's up for tomorrow? You said you're voting. Well, who's who's running? Who's voting? Uh, well, there's all kinds of people running, but I'm I'm saying what I'm telling people that listen to Buck Sexton is they should get out and vote because, I mean, Trump showed that you can, you can get out and you, you can put some of these people out that are that some of these deep state people. I mean, you gotta, you got to start at the grassroots. you got to really like, get out there and you got to vote because, I mean, if you look at what's going on, if they can do that to Trump, they can do that to anybody. And what, what they're doing is, is just dead-ass wrong. Some of this stuff's coming out with that embed and the – in the in the campaign and stuff like that. I mean, yeah, I want to. I'm gonna dr- I'm gonna drill down to that. People are probably like, "Buck, why aren't you hitting that more today?" I'm I'm doing some of my deep dive research, and it'll probably hit it more tomorrow and the next day. But uh, I I do think that they I think that there's a preponderance of the evidence now pointing toward a penetration of the Trump campaign by somebody working on behalf of the uh, the FBI and perhaps others in the uh, in the intelligence community. We don't know yet, but we'll we'll look into that. And, uh, and John, uh, I appreciate you calling in from Pennsylvania. Thank you, sir. Uh, yeah, don't think that I've, that's off my, off my radar. I, I will certainly be spending more time looking at and thinking about the Mueller probe. But to be honest with you folks, I, I need to stop as a preface to a sentence. I need to not use that anymore because it makes it sound like, well, unlike the other times where I'm being dishonest with you folks, right? <laughs> let me, let me be straight with you here. Unlike the other times. No, but, but I, I get Mueller fatigue here, and I, and I know so many shows spend so much time on it. I really look, I feel like by the time you get to listen to me, many, you know, those of you listening live or many of you are listening uh, on the podcast later on, you, you know, I, I'm giving you stuff that you haven't heard elsewhere and hopefully stories you haven't even heard about elsewhere. And it's one of the one of the value adds that I like to have here on the show. So I try to also mix it up. I mean, today, look, you got to talk about Israel when it's the biggest story in the country, I think, right? The, what it means to the Trump administration. So we certainly do a fair amount of, of the big news of the day here, but I try to bring other things into the mix as well. That all said, I just also get tired of Mueller, right? the whole thing, right? Oh, this and that and this and that. And, you know, it's it's certainly a marathon, not a sprint. And it feels sometimes like it's a it's a marathon in slow motion, right? It's just watching paint dry here with hoping this thing is going to end uh sometime soon and i'll look into you know we wanted to have kim strassel last week she got super busy because her story on this possible penetration of the trump campaign became one of the one of the main news narratives in the country unless you're a democrat and then it's just stormy daniels and you know russia or this guy michael avenatti who her lawyer the porn lawyer this guy is sending around some pretty crazy emails to people in the media threatening them. Like, you can't talk about this or I'm going to sue you and you better watch out or else. This guy's a clown. And this guy's a real joke. But notice, you know, uh, Cooper and Cuomo and Tapper and Maddow and they're all, oh, they treat this guy like he's he's a real hero of the resistance. You know, they'll, they'll treat him with a lot of respect. The, the guy who's, you know, the, the porn lawyer guy, uh, Avenatti. I think, the, I think he's angling for a show. I really do. I think he thinks he's going to get his own cable news show. I, w- I want to talk to you about uh, liberal hypocrisy when it comes to um, homelessness, uh, specifically in California and what's going on there. That'll that'll be a story coming up. And then also 
Teen Vogue and Karl Marx. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes. Buck Sexton. Permission decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One Make, Make no mistake. America. Ready. Great. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. About 75% of geographical area is inhabited by 25% of lower income people, by and large. So people in this medieval society on the coast, they don't believe in water transfers for agriculture and for poor people, but they surely do for the artificial landscapes in the Bay Area, whether it's Hetch Hetchy or the California Water Project. So that attitude is it sort of reverberates throughout California, and it's a dysfunctional state because of that. There's the middle class, about four or five million people have left. We had about four or five million people come illegally from southern Mexico, and we've had an enormous concentration of global wealth in a very small geographical area, and you put all that together and you get what you have now. A dysfunctional state. That was uh, Victor Davis Hanson, uh, one of my favorite contemporary writers. Um, does a great job, National Review. I really like his books, too. Uh, and I had the good fortune to be a, well, I was going to say, I was out on the West Coast, got that. Who cares about that for now? Um, but he's a really interesting guy, and, and I really appreciate his analysis as a California native of what's going on out there because it, it, it is a window into our future. And when I say that it is turning into a stratified uh, socioeconomic society like Latin America, I don't mean in terms of the Latin American population in California. I mean incredibly wealthy people, period, and very, very, very dependent on the state, not wealthy people, right? You have that across much of Latin America. That's the status quo in Brazil. That's the status quo in Argentina. That's that's just the way that it is. And California doesn't have an answer to this problem, really. And I think it's just going to keep getting worse and worse. Uh, but apart from the issue of illegals, where you have a lot of hypocrisy, because the liberals who have the money and have a lot of say in what the government is doing in California don't deal with illegals except in ways that benefit them, right? Their, their kids aren't going to schools with a lot of illegal immigrants. Their kids aren't, or their, uh, their neighborhoods tend not to be places where you have, you know, not a lot of illegals in Beverly Hills, for example, at least not living there. Uh, but the homelessness issue, which is separate from the issue of illegal immigrants, is also a place where you see the stratification. I didn't even know this. You know, I was in... L.A. recently, a few weeks back, and I told you I love San Diego. L.A. has some great parts and some big drawbacks. But I would drive past these encampments of uh, homeless people. And, and, and I, mean, I mean, it looked like Occupy Wall Street. I mean, tents that are clearly not going anywhere, set up for long-term open-air living. And... I knew that that L.A. had this problem, but I I didn't know until I read this article in the uh, was it the Post, the Times, that California has a quarter of the entire country's homeless population. Okay, so twenty five percent of all homeless people in the three hundred twenty million person United States are in California, which is pretty stunning. But it's only now becoming an issue because you see a lot of the the liberals in the Bay Area, L.A. And around really the coasts, the rich people in California live in the coasts. The 
working class, poor people, illegal immigrants, they live more in the interior of California. But the rich people along the coasts are starting to complain about the homeless population because they're actually having, it's gotten so bad that they're actually having to deal with it. This is the piece in the Washington Post. As gentrification escalates in California, people wonder, where can the homeless go? Well, let me answer this question. I can't go to, you can't go to Malibu. Can't go to Orange County. Can't go to, you know, the, the nice, you know, Santa Monica. Well, actually, there's a lot of homeless in Santa Monica. It's a problem they have because of the beaches. Uh, but, you know, can't go to a lot of places where the wealthy are congregated. But they don't understand that having the policies they do of permissiveness for homelessness statewide cause problems for everybody else, right? Just now, you're starting to see some pushback on this because, and this, by the way, you see this with schools. You see this with a number of things. These sanctimonious limousine liberals will be, they stand so tall, they're so into the virtue signaling on this stuff. The moment that they actually have skin in the game, the moment that it's, hold on a second, you're going to have to deal with these policies you advocate for everyone else, they don't even try to hide the hypocrisy. It just jumps out at you. Uh, this is one in particular I'm trying to find. This was in this piece on, uh, uh, you know, I, I think that Malibu is one of the most beautiful places in the whole country, but obviously it's an incredibly wealthy liberal enclave, right? But it's a very, very beautiful place. If you haven't been, Pacific Coast Highway there is it's worth a drive. It's, it's, it's gorgeous. Obviously a very, very expensive place to live as well. Um, but here's what this piece says about Malibu. It's a city west of Los Angeles that includes a neighborhood nicknamed Billionaire's Beach. But residents have urged a church to stop the weekly dinners it holds for the homeless. Residents argue that offering charity just attracts more homeless people. And the same thing has happened in other parts of Los Angeles. Uh, oh, you mean that if you if you invite now the church is different than the state, but if you have state policies that invite in uh, homeless people and tell them that they can live on the streets and they, you know, by the way, this leads to outbreaks of disease. It's really unsanitary. I'm I'm all for helping the homeless. I'm not for municipal policies that encourage the homeless to just live out on the city streets which is what you have in places like L.A. You have these big encampments of tents everywhere. And that's been okay until they want to set up shop in Malibu. Then all of a sudden, liberals start complaining about it. Until they want to start, you know, taking over parks. That's, by the way, one of the things you see. Park is supposed to be a common space, a shared space, right, for all people in a neighborhood, anyone even passing through the neighborhood to enjoy. If a park turns into a giant open-air latrine, it is much less enjoyable, I think. Call me crazy. Uh, but that's what ends up happening in a lot of these. And, by, and I've heard it's worse in San Francisco than any other place in the country. Uh, I have friends and family members that have been out to the West, uh, been out to specifically the Bay Area recently, and they say it's just San Francisco is feeling more and more like a giant open air homeless shelter. It's not good for the homeless people that are in these encampments, by the way. It's not uh, helpful to them to. Being a in a city that, you know, gives them all kinds of uh, free services and, and really encourages them. I think San Francisco also gives has a has a needle distribution program. So you got 
hyperder- uh, hyperdermic needles all over the city, too, now. I mean, they're really ruining these places, folks. And by the way, what is one unifying characteristic of all of these cities and, of course, the state of California? It is the Democrat stronghold, the bluest of the blue, as left-wing, as progressive as it gets. At least New York City progressivism has a bit of, there's a bit more of, a, of an attachment to capitalism as a general concept, you know, because of Wall Street and all that stuff. Out in the progr- out in the West Coast, the progressives, man, it's they're 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 even in a whole other level, I think. Oh, here's another one. This is when all of a sudden the the problem of mass homelessness, liberals start to pay attention when it is literally in their backyard, right? When it's your backyard, how could you be so mean? Why don't you want to help the less fortunate? Oh, but when all of a sudden it means that their uh, celebrated cultural edifices are uh, under assault, then there's a problem. Here's what this piece says. There's a fire last fall that threatened the Getty Museum uh, because a, a fire started in a hillside homeless encampment, which drew calls from some of the richest Los Angeles neighborhoods for the government to do more to address the issue. Downtown businesses also burned as a result of cooking fires that got out of control in homeless enclaves. This stuff is dangerous. Plus, you get a homeless man walk into a steakhouse in Ventura in, in uh, Los Angeles and stab a 35-year-old man as he ate dinner with his 5-year-old daughter sitting in his lap, folks. Okay? Allowing uh, for widespread systematic homelessness on the streets without a city program to address it and deal with it right away is a big problem. I saw this in New York City. There was, an, in my neighborhood, on the east side of New York, growing up as a kid, there was an open-air homeless shelter that was being operated right a, a block away from my church, and not by the church, by the way, by a bunch of Democrat politicians who wanted to look like they were being so nice. But you know what? It was loud. It was uh, unsanitary. It was dangerous. Maybe now the liberals are starting to wake up because the loudness and the lack of sanitary conditions and the danger is getting close enough to them. You know, maybe they should also think there's some ideas we should revisit here about being a bleeding heart progressive. Just maybe. Just maybe. We'll be right back. So the left has some weird heroes. And I don't mean today. I don't mean like Sarah Silverman, who's neither funny nor charming nor interesting. I mean, historically, too. I mean, you will see people walking down the street, progressives who think of themselves as very socially conscious, woke in the parlance of our times. They're so woke. And they will, whether they believe it or not, virtue signal by tying themselves to symbols of the wicked. You see this with Che Guevara, for example, Ernesto Guevara. We all call him Che. Che just means dude. It's a nickname, like Buck. Two points, everybody. What's my real name? Some of you are yelling James, and you're correct. But no, Ernesto Che Guevara. Buck is my middle name, so that counts. Uh, is somebody you'll see emblazoned on T-shirts, and they they won't know about his... Uh, his authoritarianism, his brutality, his feelings towards what should be done to uh, to uh, gays. He, he was a, a terrible fellow. 
I mean, Guevara was a really bad guy, but he's a revolutionary, and there's a picture of him where he looks like kind of a handsome Brooklyn hipster, and so, bam, his face is on things. But you don't usually see a hipsterization of Karl Marx among the pop culture set, Um, but sometimes it happens, and now we've got an example of that, courtesy of Teen Vogue. So, like, oh, my gosh, like, whatever, because, like, if I just, like, listen to Ariana Grande, like, I feel like I'll get, like, the best sense of, like, capitalism and, like, what's going on in the world because she, like, sells so many CDs. The usage, the the overuse of like in speech is one of the things that we should all work to eradicate. And I will tell you, I know some lots of very smart people who, like, just, like, just, like, they'll, like, talk, like, just like this, like all like that, it needs to stop. It is bad. It's a habit. It is learned. And we need, I know this is a very get off my lawn thing, but you all have to agree with me. As I said to you, everyone should feel comfortable pausing. I do it all the time here on the show. I'm also speaking for three hours at a time, but everyone should feel comfortable pausing as they speak and and not like feel like they have to like feel like every like pause, like because like, oh my, Anyway, so, like, Karl Marx, back to Teen Vogue. Here's an article, and the title is, Who is Karl Marx? Meet the anti-capitalist scholar. The communist scholar's ideas are more prevalent than you might realize in Teen Vogue. And they go on to, to say, this, this author in Teen Vogue, which I, I didn't even really know was a thing, uh, goes on to, to, to uh, actually give some information about Marx. I'm like, you know, she has access to Wikipedia. That's good. So talking about the Communist Manifesto and socialism and labor and there's a little bit of information in here. So I can't say that it's a total loss because I'm sure there's some girls who are like, oh my gosh, like why is Santa Claus like writing about political things? Like it's not Santa Claus, honey. It's Karl Marx. Close enough though. Like whatever. Does he bring presents? Well, actually, in fact, there's uh, (laughs) That's that's kind of part of the appeal of socialism is the promise that you're going to get lots of free goodies and presents, but it doesn't work out that way. So in a sense, Karl Marx is an evil Santa Claus. He's Santa, but there aren't any actual presents. He's Santa who takes presents from you. Uh, but this piece goes on to then, after laying out some of the very basics about the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, uh, goes in to say things like, like this, quote, some examples of violence that aided in the establishment of capitalism in the United States include stealing the land of indigenous people and trafficking Africans through slavery, end quote. So now we're going to look at capitalism as anything bad that has happened during the period that capitalism has existed. Like, let's pick the worst stuff and blame that on capitalism, even if it has nothing to do per se, with the economic system of capitalism. Isn't, see, this is polluting the minds of the youth, my friends. Socrates got in trouble for this, but Teen Vogue is actually doing it. You mean Socrates? As an aside, I saw over the weekend, I saw uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Bogus, excellent. And, you know, Keanu Reeves is one of my favorite actors, I'll say that, so I have a particular place uh place in my heart for 
Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Bogus Journey was just like not not good enough. It was uh, it was it was bogus. Obviously, it's a well named movie in that the, the journey in the second one was was bogus. But there's more in this Teen Vogue piece that I find troubling because uh, I assume that only I I can't imagine anyone who's not a teenage girl reads Teen Vogue. I could be wrong, but there are things like this in this piece. Uh, While you may not necessarily identify as a Marxist, socialist or communist, you can still use Karl Marx's ideas to use history and class struggle to better understand how the current socio-political climate came to be. Instead of looking at President Donald Trump's victory as a snapshot, we can turn to the bigger picture of what led up to the current moment. So, yeah, you can use Marx's ideas to better understand the current socio-political climate in America. I guess that's somehow technically true in that learning things means that you'll know more about other things as you learn them, but I don't think that Marx and his theories are particularly useful for understanding this moment in time in this country. Plus, like, Marx, like, if you go back and you look at, like, the history of, like, Marxism, like, there's not a lot of, like, really fancy designers in communist countries. Like, kind of think that communist countries have really bad designers if you look at the photos. See, I want to scare the youth away from communism, so I want to tell them about things like that. Like, the cars were, like, really ugly and, like, slow and not... Like, there were no beamers in, like, communist countries. Like, not, like, fancy ones, at least. Stuff like that. Uh, so if Teen Vogue is going to get in on this game, I feel like we need to do our part and uh, disabuse the youth of thinking that that Marx is cool. But what, what was it? Mar- the 200th anniversary of... Uh, yeah. It, two, I'm sorry. Yeah, the 200th birthday of Karl Marx was May 5th. That was why this is getting getting some traction. Oh, and maybe it will be good, just as an aside, maybe it would be good to include in this piece about Marxism in Teen Vogue uh, some discussion of the hundreds of millions who were killed as a result of this guy's terrible ideas that negate basic human nature and therefore dignity, uh, and the billions of people throughout history who have been I- enslaved as a result of these terrible ideas. Uh, That also might be nice to throw into this Teen Vogue article on Karl Marx. But, like, happy birthday, Karl. You're, like, 200. That's, like, so old. Like, OMG. He's back with you now. Because when it comes to the fight for truth... The buck never stops. Team, whenever I see something online that I think is really worthwhile, I, I try and share it with you, even if it's n- has nothing to do with the news. And I wanted to tell you about this one. Uh, this was off of a Twitter thread. Usually you don't find a lot of wisdom on Twitter, or a lot of things that uh, inspire you, pull at your heartstrings. This one, though, I-, I thought was worth sharing with you in particular. It's from a father, uh, Goyo, who's a Catholic priest. And here's what he shared. Meet Estella and Nicholas. Today they got married. For anyone else, this would just be a picture of a normal wedding day. 
But for these two, there's much more than meets the eye. For them, this is a story of the triumph of love and hope. There's a nice photo of Nicholas and Estella looking very lovely on their wedding day. Father Goyle writes, Three weeks ago, I was approached by someone at my parish. Father, there's a couple who wants to get married. I'm glad to hear it, I said. Tell them to call me and we will set up a meeting. Well, she said, this is the thing. They're in the hospital. Could you come see them, please? I went to visit them, only to find out that Estella, a beautiful 26-year-old woman, had cancer that had spread all over her body. Doctors gave her a limited time of life. I saw her husband-to-be by her side with a sad smile in his eyes, asking me for hope and a miracle. I didn't know what to say. I can't perform miracles, but I listened and I did what I do best. I put a smile on Estella's face. Her smile brightened the room like I've never seen before. Yes, I told her when she asked me about her wedding. I will do the wedding. I went back home very sad. I never take the hard cases home with me in the hospitals, but this was different. I couldn't shake it off. Plus, I've never done an emergency wedding, so the nerves were pretty bad. Now I had to prepare for something I myself wasn't ready for. We agreed we would do a private wedding since she couldn't move much and had tons of needles. I would come to the room along with the witnesses and some family members. I'm not going to lie. I felt really nervous. This is something they don't teach in seminary. The day came. I took my alb, stole, and ritual book, my holy water, of course, and I decided to stop at the store to buy her some flowers since I didn't expect her to have many. I already told friends to make her feel like a bride and to put in a suit, I said, uh, for her groom. I drove to the hospital. When I got there, I couldn't believe what I saw. Sixty people were waiting, including doctors and her nurses. Estella felt so much better that the wedding would take place in the chapel, and she looked so beautiful and full of life. And there is a photo that he attaches of Estella looking absolutely uh, splendid on her wedding day. Father writes, I gave her the bouquet of white roses, and smiling timidly, she said, Thank you, Father. This is the dream of my life. I never thought I could do it before my life was over. I am telling you, I had to summon all my strength not to cry, so I just smiled back and helped her up. I accompanied both groom and bride to the chapel, which was packed before we started. I'd never paid so much attention to those vows. I take you for better and worse, in sickness and health, till death do us part. At this point, the sniffles and the tears were louder than music. Staff of the hospital were amazing. They prepared a surprise reception in less than 24 hours. Then the groom said to me, Thank you, Father. All I wanted was for God to bless my love for her, and it happened. I don't know what the future has for Estella and Nicholas. I don't know what will happen tomorrow. But today they enjoyed the miracle of love that gives strength to the sick. Today hope, faith, and love won. And one more day we all gave thanks to God. So they experienced the love that conquers the hopeless heart, sadness, and suffering. The love that brings tears of joy in health and illness till death breaks the earthly bond. My dear friends, I love being part of your witness, Estella and Nicholas. God loves you.
from Father Goya. Time to spread some freedom coast to coast. He's a lean, mean analysis machine. Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. I don't even know how I would characterize that music we just played. It, it feels like it's, it's multiple genres. It's kind of like aggressive elevator music. You know, it's, it's the music where... You're, you're not supposed to hear it, but for a second you might catch yourself like, ooh, I got to sway those hips side to side with this elevator music. Hope you all had a great uh, Mother's Day. I made my now world famous, thanks to the Stephen Colbert show, and my world famous eggs, which uh, I will say were delicious. The eggs I nailed, because I make eggs almost every day. And I can tell you that I'm actually leaner and in better health now than I was when I used to eat like a big bowl of special K to start my day. That was also before I knew I had celiac disease. Uh, but I, I'm not going to lie to you because I, I did not manage to nail everything. We had a, a great Mother's Day brunch. I was uh, with my, my siblings, my two awesome brothers, my amazing little sister and my parents, mom and dad. And uh, you know we made mom because we have a great mom, a, a very nice Mother's Day brunch. I nailed, I nailed the bacon. I got thick cut bacon from... Italy in New York City, which is this Italian, kind of a gourmet Italian mall. It's like a big superfood store, but I got the thick cut bacon. I mean, you can really taste the pork. It's really phenomenal. And that came out very well. And the eggs came out very well. And, and I, I got some roast potatoes, too. I thought I would flash fry. This is where, this is where I went wrong. I thought I would uh, flash fry the roast potatoes. And sure enough... Um, they didn't get so much flash, uh, flash fried as flash soggy. And yeah, wasn't really the all time best move that I've ever pulled off. <gasps> what an idiot. Oh, what a loser. Good. Good. More for me and you. Uh, but other than that, everything was great. We had a really good time, really enjoyed ourselves. And uh, there you have it. And I hope you had a great time, too. Let's get into roll call. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton if you want to send me your thoughts. Also, official team Buck at gmail.com. One bit of business. Uh, I actually have to put off the announcement about why I'm in the swamp for, for one more week. <laughs> it's not up to me, team. What can I tell you? One more week, and then... We can announce, and we will be good to go. Uh, it's exciting stuff. That much I can tell you. All right. Uh, first up here, we have Sterling, who writes, Buck, love the show. Your analysis is the best out there. Something I noticed when considering the differences between the investigations of the Clintons, uh, her classified server and emails, and the Trump investigation didn't they offer immunity to almost everyone they talked to in the Hillary investigation? And their justification was that they just wanted to get to the truth. Has anyone in the Trump campaign or administration been offered immunity? You know, Sterling, this is a great point. It's one I've made before on the show in different ways, and I appreciate you raising it once again. And it's really 
the the disparity that we see from the prosecutors on the or investigators and prosecutors on the one side with the Clintons versus the way it's going on with Trump. They gave not just every benefit of the doubt, but really bent over backwards trying to make sure that there was no way that anyone could uh, run afoul of a process charge, right, of lying under oath or obstruction or destruction of evidence or any of that with the Hillary probe. And on the Trump side of the equation, they are doing everything in their power to make sure that they can get people for those reasons. You know, the show Billions is pretty good in, in, a, in a lot of ways. Some stuff is a little over the top. It's a Showtime show. I was watching it this past uh, weekend. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of these shows where it, 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 you, you finally see that prosecutors, uh, prosecutors are not, in fact, uh, these paragons of virtue who do not in any way... Um, have politics influencing their thinking. You know, you see in Billions a guy who is trying to become governor, spoiler alert, sorry, uh, but who's doing all sorts of political machinations behind the scenes, including those that benefit him specifically. Really interesting from a recent episode, by the way, was, this is a total aside, but since I was talking about food and cooking before, they eat something called an ortolan on the show. And I will be honest with you, I had never heard of this before. So an ortolan is a, a delicacy. Uh, this became popular in, well, they say it was popular even in ancient Rome, uh, but it certainly is still something that is liked by a certain contingent in France. It's, an ortolan is a songbird, and what they do, and by the way, it's illegal to eat it, and it's considered a great mark of elitism if you ever get the chance to eat it so an ortolan is this songbird and when you eat it you cover your head and this was all in the show you cover your head in a white napkin a white cloth the idea being to shield yourself from god that's kind of the the lore behind it other people say it's actually just so you have the uh the the vapors the the scents of the food the smells that come together uh, it's, it's you know you enjoy it more if you um, have this napkin over your head, but it, so this is just a songbird that they they keep in darkness and uh, the, or they blind it actually. It's this little bird, and then it gorges on grains and grapes. It becomes incredibly fat, and then it is uh, thrown alive into a vat of Armagnac brandy. So it drown, you drown the bird in brandy, which then, of course, also marinates the bird after you've made it insanely fat. And then you eat the whole thing kind of like a soft-shell crab, and it's called an ortolan. And this is illegal everywhere now. They're protected, in fact. The birds are protected. They, they eat it on the show Billions, though, because it's now considered a super secret elitist thing to do. Anyway, so I learned about ortolans from Billions, but more importantly with prosecutors... Uh, you see that they are very political, and you get a sense of that from the show. Uh, we have next up here, uh, Vicky, who writes, Shields High, this is why God in heaven chose Donald Trump to become president, to clean house with all the lies and corruption going on for decades. We all knew it, and even some on the other side knew it, but were not able to speak, and probably because lives were in danger. 
this is a great and scary time to be alive and aware of the business in, in D.C. Keep up the good work, Vicky. Well, Vicky, thank you so much. Appreciate the words of support, and uh, thank you so much for writing in on Roll Call. Next up, Ryan, who writes, Hey, Buck, I love your show. Listening in via podcast, could you post a list of your sponsors and associated codes somewhere on your show site? Thanks and shields high, Ryan. Well, Ryan, it's very kind of you. Uh, and it is really important, folks, whenever you hear me talking about our sponsors, remember, those are companies that like my show, like what I'm doing, appreciate the work and effort that goes into this. And so it really is a partnership. And when you use that promo code, you get a discount, which is great. But it's also a way of casting a vote for the Freedom Hut, for this show. The Buck Sexton Show is what it's actually called. Uh, but that's it's really important. It really helps. It means a lot. Uh, and these are when I tell you about my sponsors, I mean, I drink Black Rifle all the time. I'm actually going to get Black Rifle sent to my new office here in D.C. as well as at home. So I'm all about it. Uh, if you're somebody who runs a company and you want someone to do background investigation services for you, uh, or just background or just background and vetting in general, global verification. I know the CEO, it's a company of great guys, but when you call them, we don't have a promo code. Just tell them, you know, we learned about you on the Buck Sexton show. That stuff makes all the difference. It really does. And, you know, we do this show. It's obviously free for all of the listeners, uh, but if you can see your way, uh, see your way fit to do so, please uh, check out our sponsors, use our promo code, spread the word, tell people that you heard about it here. Uh, it means a lot. It means a lot to me. Thank you so much. So, uh, oh, buck 15 for Black Rifle, by the way. Buck 1-5. So next up here, we have so many good callers. So much fun. Joshua. When I say callers, I mean writers. Pardon me. Hey there, Buck. Big fan. United States Marine Corps active. I'm a fan of yours and Joe Rogan's. Would like to see you on his show or vice versa. He's got a really negative opinion on Trump, and I get that Trump is not perfect, but I'd like to see you set Rogan straight and maybe help him see the light a little. Anyways, take care and shields high. P.S. I love Rogan, but his Trump bashing is over the line and just drives me insane. Well, Joshua, first of all, thank you for your service. I'm always uh, especially honored to have such a, uh, uh, a fantastic contingent of active and former U.S. military uh, listening into this program uh, we really have that's a real it's a core look it's a core audience for us i, I like to think it's just because of the content maybe it's also because i have a little bit of a richer understanding i think of what a lot of the military goes through having lived for uh long stretches of time on military bases uh here and abroad having spent a lot of time in some of the uh dicier uh, parts of the globe iraq and afghanistan notably so that's one other place that I think we, or one other way that we can connect. As to Rogan, uh, I'd love to do his show. And you know what's actually something that, that, for those of you who are so interested, I take guest suggestions from all of you. When you email me or you send me a note on Facebook, you say, hey, check this guy out or this gal out. I look them up, and if we have a way of working them into the show, I've brought on lots of guests because of audience requests. Uh, so if you want me to do the Joe Rogan show, and you're an, a constant listener, you're you know a frequent listener to the show, reach out to Joe. Say, hey, you should have Buck Sexton on. Uh, you'd be surprised. He might be like, yeah, you know what? That ex-CIA analyst dude with the poofy hair, I'll give him a shot. You know, We'll talk about some stuff. So I'd be happy to do his show. I think Joe does some really interesting work. And Joshua, thank you so much for the suggestion. Uh, let's see here. Bryce has been writing here. He, he writes, uh, 
I've been trying to think of something worthwhile, but to no avail. I have a question, though. In your opening sequence, there are two most Morse code letters. Is there some meaning to this? I would have expected BS, not BG. Shields high, Bryce. Bryce, I have no idea, man. I don't know Morse code. I'm not going to lie to you. So you caught me, my friend. That's going to be it for the uh, hut today. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. I will be back with you every day this week from the swamp where I am live and things are steamy and getting swampier. Uh, Send me your thoughts. Please tell somebody about the show. And until tomorrow, you have your orders, my friends. Shields hot. Nine-Line Apparel is a veteran-owned and operated patriotic lifestyle brand. And as a give-back company, Nine-Line is proud to announce a partnership with NASCAR driver Jeffrey Earnhardt to give back to children of our nation's fallen. From now through the end of May 15th, so not a lot of time here, folks, go to NineLineApparel.com to get their Remember the Fallen Memorial Day t-shirt. With each shirt purchased, you have the option of submitting the name of a fallen soldier And these heroes' names will cover Jeffrey Earnhardt's car at the Coca-Cola 600 over Memorial Day weekend in Charlotte. The charity that Nine Line and Jeffrey Earnhardt are partnering with is Angels of America's Fallen. They support the children of those lost due to military service. So please support our fallen heroes. Go to NineLineApparel.com to get this exclusive Memorial Day t-shirt. Do so, if you can, before the end of May 15th. So we just got a short period here. NineLineApparel.com. Support our fallen heroes.